46. It's good to see everybody here this morning. It's a beautiful morning. We thank the Lord for all of the wonderful days that He's given us from a weather perspective. And uh, just meeting outside has been more bearable. And, uh, and then having the heaters out here, that helps as well. And, so, and, then, and then just the warmness of seeing people's smiles, that helps as well. So keep the warmness of the heart there. And, uh, and um, the Lord will, will bless that. Um, this morning, I'm going to start a series on, uh, built around the phrase, I don't think it means what you think it means. And uh, some of you are familiar with that phrase. If you like uh, good, wholesome, classic movies, you're probably familiar with it from the movie The Prince's Bride. And uh, maybe you can even remember the story. I'll give you a little bit of it if you haven't seen it, or maybe you haven't seen it in a long time, and give you a little bit of a, of a, a, a help your imagination, I guess, to picture the events of this uh, line, where this line comes from. In the movie, um, Vizzini, which is one of the main characters who's noted throughout the movie for his quotable lines, and he's constantly saying, inconceivable. If you've seen the movie before, you can probably picture him now with his very notable lisp saying, inconceivable. Is that pretty good? Okay? No? Okay, never mind. That's really not what the message is about anyway. So um, at one point in the movie, Wesley, also known as the man in black, is, is climbing up the, the cliffs of insanity when Vicini maniacally cuts the rope. Uh, thinking, obviously, that this uh, man in black would then fall to his death. Um, at that point in time, another one of the characters named Ania Mantoya, he walks up to the cliff of insanity, and he calmly looks over the side of the cliff, and he says, very calmly and matter-of-fact, he says, he didn't fall. And uh, to which Vizzini, I don't know if I'm saying that right, I might not be, but he passionately reacts inconceivable. And uh, Ania Mantoya looks at Vicini puzzled and says, you keep using that word. I don't think that, I don't think it means what you think it means. So maybe that refreshes some of your memory if you've seen that movie before. If you haven't seen that movie, that was a very poor reenactment of a scene, but maybe it gives you some idea as to what takes place and when we see this line in the movie, um, it, it's something that brings back memories. It's something that we can laugh at and enjoy. But I'd like to look at it from a little bit of a different perspective, uh, a little bit more of a, a serious note. And my plan for this series is to, is to go through the Scriptures and look at certain terms in the Bible that um, may not, the words that we hear and see may not mean what we think they mean. Now, they may have taken on a whole different meaning in the culture that we live in, and so that when we read them or when we use them in daily um, life, we don't really understand what those words mean, which ultimately leads to some pretty serious dangers for the gospel, for the Word of God, for biblical doctrine. So... Um, some people will use this philosophy, uh, this, 
changing of words as they read or interpret or imply the Word of God. And this misuse, manipulation, or misunderstanding of biblical words will lead to these words taking on new meanings. And when these words take on new meanings, it ultimately leads to false doctrine and false converts. And when we have, when we have words in the Bible um, following cultural meanings or being redefined by culture, um, ultimately we can become confused as to what that doctrine is. And so we need to recapture that. Let me illustrate it for you. Recently, a Christian school chaplain told his high school students, and I quote, Don't let anyone ever tell you that you don't deserve mercy. This might sound nice. It might sound politically correct. It might sound like the loving thing to say. It might sound like a kind thing to say. But we must note that mercy, by definition, means that it cannot be deserved. To say to a person, don't let anybody ever tell you that you do not deserve mercy, is to say to them that you're not to believe in mercy as it is defined by God's Word. And as it is, honestly, defined by Webster's Dictionary as it is defined by all different definitions, mercy cannot exist without it being undeserved. When mercy or grace becomes deserved, it is no longer mercy or grace. So a lot of words, and I'm not going to talk to you this morning about mercy, I'm going to talk to you about grace, but many words in, in Scripture have taken on new meanings in the 21st century, which ultimately has changed the meaning of God's Word. And so when you read a word in Scripture and you apply the new meaning of that word, then you are um, led into false doctrine, to heresy, and ultimately the result of that is people believing. Um, the reality of it is this. If you believe mercy is something that you deserve, that's detrimental to your very salvation. If you believe grace is something that you can merit or earn or become worthy of, then that, doesn't, that means you don't believe in a mercy and a grace that the Bible teaches. And we, we may find that to be, we may find that to be, well, that's no big deal as long as we're being loving and kind and all of those things and politically correct in what we're saying. But the reality of it is, is people's, people's eternal destiny is on the line when it comes to defining words. If you misdefine words and then you apply those words to Scripture, then you can have a, a real biblical issue, a real biblical problem, a doctrinal problem, a, a, doctrine, a, a, a gospel problem. And so what, what I want to do uh, in this series, uh, I don't know how long it's going to last. It'll be several weeks. But just take some words in the Scriptures and, and not redefine them, but maybe recapture what they really mean. And when we recapture what they really mean, then we can put them into the Scriptures again and, and we can learn and grow from that. This morning in Romans chapter number 6, and we're actually going to look at a number of um, references before that, or I'm just going to talk about it a little bit. We're going to talk about grace and, and what does grace mean. We're, we're called Grace Bible a Church. We believe that grace is the foundation for our salvation, Ephesians 2, 8, 9 
for by grace you have been saved. Uh, we know that grace is something that's very, very important to our Christian life, really the foundation of our Christianity and the foundation of what I would say true Christianity is built on grace. And so we want to understand what does grace mean and then also look at what are some perhaps wrong conclusions of grace and then get to a, a biblical concept of it from the sixth chapter of Romans. And the sixth chapter of Romans really defines for us three areas of grace that are, that are often um, left out. Almost they're, they're, not, they're not noticed by people who are reading through Scripture or people who are thinking about grace. I just want to remind you of those things that are not only included in grace, but they're necessary in grace. They're important to grace. In other words, you don't have grace without them. In the same way that we would say, if you merit it, in Romans, um, just the previous chapter, it says if you merit grace, if you merit something, it's no longer grace. If you can work for it, if you can deserve it, then it's no longer grace. Now it's a wage. Okay, if you, if you can't work for it and you can't merit it, but yet it's given to you freely, now it's considered to be a grace. So I want to just recapture that. So three thoughts this morning from Romans, really Romans 3 down to Romans 6, but we'll actually read Romans 6 when we get to the point where we're ready to unfold that. That'll be our main thought. But if you're taking notes, number one, notice the partial consideration of grace. Notice the partial consideration of grace. We start with a partial understanding. And the partial understanding of truth is oftentimes the reason for confusion, manipulation, and error. In other words, somebody might know a word or a topic well enough to talk about it with confidence but not know it well enough to truly understand it or to grasp the depths behind the word. This is where the phrase comes from, I know it well enough to be... Can you, can you complete that line? I know it well enough to be dangerous, right? That's where that line comes from, is that you know enough about the, the word or the phrase or the term that you can be dangerous with it, you can talk about it with confidence, but you don't grasp it enough to really be able to interact with it on a spiritual level and then be able to, to communicate it to other people. So what do we learn leading up to chapter number 6 about grace? What do we learn leading up to chapter number 6 about grace? Number one is it is free. Grace is free. Romans 3 and verse 23, the Bible says... For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a free gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God hath put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. We learn, number one, that grace is free. And you can't earn it, you can't deserve it, you can't merit it, you can't work for it. Grace is something that God gives to us freely. And again, it's not, it's not an exchange. It's not me giving something to him and him giving something back. It is completely free. Not only is grace free, but number two, we learn that grace is a gift. It's something that is given by God to his people. Again, 
Back in the text, it says that it's a gift. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace you are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves it is a gift from God. Romans 6, 23, The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Grace is a gift. It's something that is given to us. And remember this, what makes it grace is that it's given to undeserving people. It's given to unworthy people. It's given to people who have not done anything to merit it. That's what makes it grace. If you've done something to be deserving of it, or if you could say to somebody, well, I'm giving you this grace because you have done this, or because of this, then you have no longer have grace. Grace is something that is given freely as a gift. And remember this as well. Grace is something that's given as a gift, and it's totally based upon the merits of the one who is giving. In other words, grace is meant to point to the giver and not the receiver. If you read in um, Ephesians chapter number 1, the scripture points out the fact that all of the salvation that we experience is meant to point to the glory of God's grace. It's meant to show He is kind. It's meant to show that He is forgiving. It's meant to show that He is, he is um, generous. He is benevolent. All of the things of grace are meant to point us to the sufficiency of the one who is giving, not to the goodness of the one who is receiving. The reality of it is in Romans 5, it says that God showed His love or His grace upon us that while we were still, what? While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So it doesn't say while we were worthy, while we were righteous, while we were good, Christ died for us. It says while we were completely unworthy, while we were walking willingly and willfully in our sins, Christ Jesus came into this world to save us. That's what grace is. Grace is when the undeserving receives something that is a blessing totally based upon the merits of the giver and not the merits of the receiver. There are times that you parents have given your children grace. On Christmas morning, you might give them gifts. And just, just giving, them, them, giving them gifts is not grace. But has there ever been a Christmas morning where if your kid was on the naughty list, it was that year? It was sure that that kid did not deserve any gifts that year because they hadn't done, they were, they were in that rebellious stage of life and they hadn't done anything good. And yet you freely gave them gifts because you were going to grace them with those gifts. That's the way it is with the, with the Lord. It is Him giving us something freely by His own character within His own nature because He loves us and cares for us. It's a gift. It's free. Number three, it was purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. The gift that God gives us, which is eternal life, was purchased for us by Christ. Christ came to this earth 2,000 years ago. He took upon himself all of our sins, all of the sins of those who would believe and have faith in him. He took upon himself our sins. Isaiah 53 says he was bruised for our transgressions. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by our stripes, by his stripes, we are healed. Jesus Christ came into this world to purchase for us a gift of grace, 
a gift of eternal life, a gift of forgiveness. And that gift is packaged up in him. It's like on, on Christmas morning that the, uh, you, don't, you don't get the gift inside of the package unless you go through the package. In the same way with the gospel, you don't get the gift of eternal life. You don't get the gift of peace and the gift of joy and the gift of, uh, uh, of um, security. You don't get those things without going through Christ. I, I will say this to you. Many people today have tried to package up all of those things in a whole bunch of different things. Peace and security and happiness and joy. They try to package it up in something else and then they go through that hoping to get that thing. And you know what they end up with? They don't end up with peace and happiness and security, do they? First time a struggle comes into their life, they find themselves completely un unraveled by the struggle that they're facing. Because those things, the gift of eternal life, the gift of a new life is found only by coming in and through Christ. Jesus says it well in John 14 and verse 6, says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. It is the precious blood of Christ, the Son of God, who came into this world and made himself willingly a sacrifice for our sins. Jesus Christ was not forced to die on the cross. Jesus Christ was not an innocent or an unwilling uh, uh, um, participant in the, in, in the crucifixion. Jesus Christ was a willing participant in the crucifixion. He gave his life up so that we might have salvation. We must be careful never to consider the work of Christ to be something that he was not willfully involved in because this is the gospel, a willing giving of his life. John 10 tells us very clearly, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down freely. I have the power to lay it down and I have the power to take it back up again. It was purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. Number four, it includes the passing over sins. In Romans 4 and verse 7, the Bible says, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sins. In other words, the sinner is a recipient of grace and that, and that, that grace causes God to not hold his sins against him. He's no longer accountable for his sins because Jesus Christ has borne in full capacity all of his sins. Past, present, and future, there's no sins left unpaid for for those who believe and trust in Christ. That is the grace that we experience is that God looks past in the same way that he looked past David's sin with Bathsheba. He, he didn't hold David accountable. David should have been, as any sin, should have, should have lost his life. But God, the scripture says in the Old Testament that God looked past his sins. He showed him grace towards his sins. This text says that blessed are those whose sins are not held against them. That is grace. It doesn't say blessed are those who are righteous who have no sins. It says blessed are those who have, who have their sins overlooked by God. And how can we have our sins overlooked by God? It's by the sacrifice of Christ and the grace that God bestows on him. Number five, it is for the ungodly. Again, I quoted earlier Romans 5, verses 6 through 8, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Number six, it results in our being justified and being made righteous. 
And you can read that in chapter number five of Romans. The result of justification, the result of grace is that we're justified. Justification is, means that we're claimed righteous. If you, were to, if you were to stand before a judge who had the authority to claim you righteous and he claimed you righteous, that would be justification. The merits by which that judge claims you righteous and is not unjust himself is the blood of Jesus Christ. You see, the judge can say that you're innocent and not be unjust in doing so because your crime has actually been paid for. That's what justification is. God claims, God as the ultimate eternal judge of all of mankind claims a person innocent based solely on the work of Jesus Christ. There's great hope in that, isn't there? You know what that means? That means that nobody's left out of the opportunity to be saved. No one cannot, by faith, embrace Christ and repent of their sins. Christ's blood is sufficient to pay for their sins. And all should be called to repentance and the work of Christ. Its result, the result of grace is that He is justified and He is made righteous. The righteousness that He has given is a gift. It's not His own righteousness. It's considered an alien righteousness. It's a righteousness that not, that's not built around what you have done. It's a righteousness that's built around what Christ has done. It's what we know of as imputed righteousness. When Christ comes to live within you, He gives you as a gift His righteousness. Think of it this way. Imputed righteousness means that God treats you as if you had lived Jesus' life because 2,000 years ago, God treated Jesus as if He had lived your life. That's grace, isn't it? That's amazing grace. That's extraordinary grace. That's grace beyond our comprehension. In 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 30, it says this, And because of Him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Christ is for us. Not Christ gives to us. Christ is for us righteousness. It is His righteousness indwelling in this body through the person of the Holy Spirit. This is what grace is. This is what defines grace. These three chapters, uh, uh, the end of chapter number three, four, and five, they describe this. They lay it out clearly, and I would encourage you to read it when you get home. Here we reach chapter number five. And this is thought number two, the premature confidence in grace. Here's what the result of all of those things are. Here's what the Roman people say. Okay, okay, Pastor John, so grace is free. Grace is a gift. Grace is purchased by the blood of Christ. Grace is passing over my sins. Grace is for the ungodly. Grace means I'm justified and made righteous based upon what Christ has done for me. Grace means all of these things, so therefore I can just do whatever I want. I can live however I want, right? That's the conclusion of the Roman people. Matter of fact, in verse, uh, chapter 6 and verse 1, he says it this way. He says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? In other words, the question that they come to the conclusion of is, hey, all of this is built around Christ. It has nothing to do with me, and therefore I can just live however I want to live. 
I can sin as much as I want to sin. I can do whatever I want to do. There, there are no restrictions and no restraints. Because grace blesses, blesses solely on the merits of Jesus, it is and is entirely a gift and magnifies the grace of God over sin, then grace must be a license. Matter of fact, more than that, it must not only be a license to sin, it must be a call to sin. All consequences have been removed and we've all been set free to live however we want to live. The Bible uses a few words to describe this attitude in the scriptures. Number one is licentiousness. Number two is lasciviousness. And the third one is sensuality. Let me give you a short definition of each. Licentiousness means to lack restraints. In other words, it's a license. You get a driver's license. Autumn got her driver's license this week. You might want to stay off the roads for a while. She's going to be driving down the road, and, and uh, no, she does a really good job. So we're happy for that. But, but, but there's no more restraints on her from driving, right? She could, come to men, she could have come to us three years ago and said, Hey, Dad, I want to go to the store. Can you give me the keys to the car? There would be some restraints. We would say, No, you can't do it because you don't have a license to do it. What people will say with the, with the, what people say, what the Romans say with this is that, hey, we've got this license now. We've got this grace license. It's got my picture on it and my, and my address, and that's me, and I'm, on, I'm under grace. I'm not under law anymore, so I can do whatever I want, right? That's what they concluded. I've got, I've got no more restraints. All of my restraints have been taken off. I'm free. Is that what grace means? License, number two, lasciviousness. The word means lustful and lewd. It means to be, and I'll go to the last word because I think it gives it even better, sensuality. Sensuality means this, and this is the word that's used, that's most translated in the, from the Greek to the English in regards to this license, and it means this. It means to fully pleasure your senses. It means to live in the prison to your senses. Whatever your senses want, you're now free to follow them. You're free to do whatever you want because your sense wants it. It is a living life instinctively instead of living life discerningly. For an unbeliever, they live life distinctively. They have the animal instincts that lead them and guide them. For a believer, we have the Spirit of God living within us. We don't live instinctively. We live discerningly. That means we look at every decision and we look at every action in life and we compare it to what the Word of God says and we compare it to a spiritual life. And that's how we live. At least that's how we ought to live. But they say, I'm going to live instinctively without consideration of the consequences, without the consideration of others, and without the consideration of eternity. Listen to what Jude says about this. Certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for their condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into service to your senses sensuality. That's what it says. They pervert the grace of God. What does it mean to pervert something? It means to take the true meaning of it and to turn it around backwards. 
It's not just the changing of the meaning, it's the perversion of the meaning of grace. They perverted the meaning of grace. It's like our culture today perverts sexuality. Our culture today perverts a lot of everything, don't they? This is saying that they perverted, they perverted God's grace into a license to live subject to your senses. It's like God's grace is enabling me to live in my flesh. The opposite is true, folks. He says, ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny our only master, note the word master, our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Listen to this verse, Philippians chapter number 3. I'm going to turn there. I did not type this one out. Philippians chapter number 3. Think about this. The Bible says, brethren, join in imitating me. And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have told you now, I have told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as the enemies of Christ. This is a burden in Paul's Paul's heart that he's, he's, he's communicating this to them right now in tears. He calls them brothers and he says many walk as enemies of Christ. And here's why. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and their glory is that which is shameful. This is Romans 1 reiterated to us. They glory in their freedom to do whatever they want to do, which is to live ungodly lives. They glory in those things that ought to be shameful for men to ever ever claim to do. This is the epitome of our culture today. We not only have a culture that has embraced things that are shameful, but we have a culture that glories in things that are shameful. Listen to what he says at the end of Romans 1. He says this, Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, not only do they do them, but they give approval to others who practice them. In other words, they encourage other people to do the same filthiness that they're doing. It's no longer shameful for them. It's now become their idol. Lord, help us. Help us as a church to stand strong for what is right and to walk in holiness, to walk separated from the thinking of this world, to walk with spiritual focus in life, not to have our gods be our bellies, it doesn't mean your it doesn't I mean I get it you know it doesn't mean your belly it means your appetite it means whatever you find to be satisfying from a sense perspective you have five senses pick one that dominates you and don't let it be your god and their glory and shame and the bible says before it even says any of that it says their end is what their end is what is destruction. Galatians 6 says it this way, He that sows to the flesh will of the flesh reap corruption, but he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. It's truth. Back to Romans 6. The last thought this morning is the perfect conclusion to grace. So remember this. 
partial understanding leads to an inadequate presentation. It leads to embracing error. Now we're going to look at the full understanding. What is grace? In chapter number six, and I just want to walk through these things. Grace is basically three deaths and three births. Three deaths and three births. That's what grace is. Grace brings about the death to three things, and grace brings about the birth of three things. And it's all found in Romans 6. The first thing that he says in the chapter, and I'm just, let's just read it. I'm just going to read through it, and I'm going to stop and, and, and just meditate for a moment. And I know we're probably short on time, so I don't want to spend a lot of time, but I want to just focus. I want you to get the picture. The Bible says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? May abound. The apostle says, by no means. This is the strongest negative term used in the scriptures. This is absolutely not. This is, why do you even think that way? Why are you even asking this question? Why are you even, even considering that grace? Why, as a believer, would you ask the question, grace means I can do whatever I want? That's the, that's the strength of this no statement. There's no ambiguity to the no here. It's no, okay? I know sometimes we have to explain no to our kids and what it actually means. There's no need for explanation here. It is no, why are you even thinking that it means that you can do whatever you want? It's like, think of it this way. Most of you guys are parents, or a lot of you are parents. Imagine if your kid did something wrong, and they walked up to you, and you found out that they had done wrong. Let's just say that you found out that they had, they had gone and done something. They'd gone and robbed the bank. And they came up, and they, I'm just going for a big one this morning. <laughs> they, they robbed the bank, Right? And they came up, and you found out they robbed the bank, and they came up to you and said, listen, I am going to forgive you and overlook your sins. I'm going to forgive you for it. I'm going to show you grace. How many of you think that the motive behind me showing them grace is that they'll go and rob the bank again? It's not, is it? You're not forgiving them so that they'll go and rob the bank again. You're forgiving them so that they'll understand grace and not go and rob the bank again. The same principle is here. He's like, and, and wouldn't you say if your kid says, hey, hey, Will, I'm going to use you as an example this morning. You forgave me for robbing the bank. Does that mean I can go rob the bank again? And you would say, no, you cannot go rob the bank again. Emphatically. And that's what the Apostle Paul does here. No questions. Do not go and rob the bank again. Do not go back into your sins. Do not live in that which was your prison before. By no means, he says. And then he says this, How can we who died to sin live any longer in it? So he says, do you not... And, and this is where I want to, to just dwell for a few minutes. Somebody tell me what time it is. I don't want to go too long, and I've got... 728. 11.28. 7.28. Um... Yeah, I'm going to work through this a little bit. So there are three times in, this, in the remainder of this text, chapter 6 and 7, where the Bible says, do you not know? And this is a statement of, he's, 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 he's pressing into their ignorance. Why would you ask a question such as, 
can we continue in sin because of grace? Or shouldn't we continue in sin because of grace? And so he asked them the question, and, and notice this, it's important to recognize that he presses in on ignorance because he's saying to them, if you truly had grace, if you really understood grace, you would never ask that question. So he says this, do you not know? He says it three times. And there are three truths associated with each time that he says this to them. And these truths deal with something. That if, if you're a recipient of grace, then there are three things that have died in you and three births that have taken place in you. I, I'm not saying that, that it's possible that three things have died and three things are in you. I'm telling you that if you are a true follower of Christ, if you truly have received grace upon grace, there are three things that have died within you. And if you would say, well, those things haven't died within me, I would respond exactly like Paul would say, and that is, do you not know? He's not stating these things as optional. He's saying that if you're a Christian, these things have happened to you. They are a reality for you. And these are them. Let's read on. He says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk, or we too will walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in death, like his, we shall certainly be united with him in resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we should no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. One of the problems in Christianity today is that many professing Christians haven't died yet. And they're doing everything in their power to prevent themselves from dying. When you die the first time, you don't worry about the second time. If you haven't died the first time, you will worry about the second time. We don't experience the second death if you've died the first time. And this is not dying physically. This is dying to yourself. This is what takes the moment a person takes place, a moment a person gets saved, you have died. Can anybody challenge you with anything greater than dying? But if you are a Christian, you have died already. It's already true. You are already dead. That's what the Apostle Paul says in Galatians 2. He says, I am crucified in Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but it is Christ who lives in me. If, I, if I'm a Christian, I have died. The life that I'm living right now is not my life, it's his life. It's him taking this body that's, that, that he's allowed to live, but it's empty without him, and using it for his glory. Do we not know? He says, we know this. We know this is true. We know that if we're, if we're in Christ, we've already died. 
Death no longer has dominion over us. Man, if you've died, death no longer has control over you. And it even says this, sin no longer has control over you. So to say, hey, we can do whatever we want, we can live in sin all we want, it means you don't understand that if you died, you don't want to do those things anymore. I'm going to try to remember where I was reading, but I'm going to start in verse 8. He says, now if you have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him eternally. The eternal hope, we talked about that last week. Our hope as Christians is, is in the next life, not in this life. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For, a, for the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. So you also must reckon yourselves. You must consider yourselves. You must believe yourselves to be dead. That's what he says here. You must believe yourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God because Christ is in you. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from the dead, have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness." For sin will no longer have dominion over you since you are no longer under the law but under grace. The first thing that he tells us is simply this, that when you become a follower of Jesus Christ, you die to who you are. You die to yourself. Your, your old identity dies. And you now have a new identity. There's a death that takes place and there is a life that takes place. It is an eternal life that's in, that's in you and one day will be lived out in eternity. We are, he says, do you not know that you have died? You have died to yourself. You have died to self. Right? What's the, what's the thing that Jesus says in the Gospels? If you want to be my disciple, you have to do what? Deny yourself and... Die to yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. Scriptures also say if a man will save his life, he will lose it. But if a man will lose his life for the sake of the gospel and Christ, he will save it. So we as Christians, we know that saving our life is by not trying to save our lives. It's by letting Christ have them, trusting him. So the first death, the first death to that we have, and the first life that we have is we, have, we die to our self, we die to our identity, and we're given a new identity. A new, we're marked by a new identity. We're now Christians. We went from being sinners, guilty, condemned, hopeless, helpless, selfish, fleshly, lustful, all of these different uh, uh, sensual passions. We went from being controlled by them, from being identified by them, Right? Most of the people today are identifying by their sinfulness. We went from that to being identified by Christ. That's the death that happens and the new life that happens. So the question would be, under our new identity, would you ask the question, can I continue in sin? If Christ is your identity, would Christ ever... Can you picture Christ saying that? Hey, Father, I can just continue in sin, right? Because I want to show off grace. If he is your new identity, that, doesn't, that isn't even a fathomable question. Listen, let's go on. We lose our identity, we gain his identity. 
Verse 15, what then are we to sin because we no longer under, we no longer under the law but under grace by, mo, by no means? Number two, do you not know? There it is again. Here's a, here's a thing of ignorance that they don't know about grace. Grace brings you into a new identity. Grace brings you into a new master. He says, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you have been committed. And having been set free free from sin, you have become a slave of righteousness. You have become a slave. So in the old me, I was a slave to sin. I was a slave to senses. I was a slave to self. I was a slave to all of those things that I love. I was a slave to me, right? But after I'm saved, after I'm a follower of Christ, now I'm not a slave to anything, right? Is that what the text says? The text says, after I'm slave, I've become a slave to righteousness. I am now a servant of God. And the unique thing is, is the, 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 the differing thing is this. The master before wanted to destroy me. The master after wants to care for me. He loves me. I don't mind being under this master because all of his intentions are good towards me. This master, all of his intentions are evil towards me. So does the question make sense? Can we just keep on sinning when we're no longer, when we got saved, we, we, we left the slavery to sin and we became a slavery to righteousness. That's what grace does. Verse number 19, I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, talking about before, before they were saved, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regards to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of these things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin, you have become a slave of God. The fruit of, of the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. Note that. You're a slave now to righteousness, which will produce sanctification, which ultimately results in eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, grace can't. Based upon the first two things, grace cannot mean I get to do whatever I want, live however I want, sin as much as I want. Grace can't mean that. The only people that believe it means that are the ones that love grace up to salvation in regards to what it takes to get it, but they hate grace after salvation as to what it does to us. You see, grace's greatest display, remember this, the greatest display of grace is not what it costs you to get it, which is nothing. The greatest display of grace is the impact it has on your life. The greatest display of grace is for God to take an apostle or a man named Paul or Saul at that time who was killing Christians and turn him into the greatest evangelist of all time. 
How many of you think it was a great display of grace if God would have said, Paul, you're forgiven, just keep doing what you're doing? The greatest display of grace was the fact that God could take a man completely in the wrong direction and turn him around the other direction. That is the power of grace. And that's the reality for every one of us. It's not, it's not God, just forgive me of my sins. I, that's great, but Lord, transform me into a new creature. 2 Corinthians 5.17, if any man be in Christ, he may be a new creature or he is a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Listen, the idea that grace means we can do whatever we want is not a biblical concept. Grace changes who you are. It transforms you to where you will want to do the right things. The last thought. So grace takes us and kills us to our old identity and makes us alive to a new identity. And anybody who wants to have a new identity will love that. Grace takes us from a horrible master of sin and Satan and self and sets us free to a new master of God and righteousness. But the last thing is this. It says it in chapter number 7. It's the same phrase again. It says, or do you not know? Again, reaching out to that Make sure you understand what grace is. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to you as those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For, for a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she is called an adulteress as she lives with another man while her husband is still alive. Here's the picture. The picture is simply this. If you're married to two people at the same time, you're called an adulteress. Right? You're not to be married to two people at the same time. The idea is you are married to yourself and you can't be married to Christ until you die to being married to, until your other mate dies. Your other mate is self. You're married to them as long as they live. So in order to be married to Christ, you have to first do what to self? You have to do what to self? You have to put it to death. Mortify the flesh. Put it to death. It's all throughout scriptures. You can't be married to Christ and be married to the world. You can't be married to, to the spiritual and be married to the carnal. You can't be married to Christ and self. It's an impossible thing. It even says... Do you not know that you can't do those things? Grace doesn't make it possible for us to be married to two things at once. Grace makes it possible for us to kill our marriage to self and to be united to our marriage to Christ. If your old self is still your pleasure, and I, I just use this word, you have identity, you have uh, mastership, and then I use the word pleasure because I think marriage is about pleasure. I think you enjoy, you should enjoy your marriage and your mate. You have to die to your pleasure of self and sin in order to be married to the pleasure of Christ. This is why the Lord says in Matthew 13 in the parables, he says, when a man finds a field with this treasure hidden in it, which is a picture of Christ, he goes and he sells all that he has so that he can have that treasure, right? It's a little bit like the ring that you buy, guys. You go out and you spend 
most of you or many of us spend you know, the last dollar that we have to buy that engagement ring because we want our, our wife to know how, how, how wonderful she is and we want her to know how much sacrifice she's worthy of. So we spend that money to show her her value. The Bible says that you sell all that you have. You, you disconnect yourself from this world so that you can live in this world. You disconnect yourself from the past so that you can live in the present. So what grace does is three things. Grace gives you a new identity. It has to kill your old one. Grace gives you a new master. It has to kill your old one. Grace gives you a new partner. Grace gives you a new marriage, a new relationship, but it has to kill your old one. There must be three deaths and three lives. In conclusion, let me read to you 2 Timothy, or let me read to you Titus 2, verse 11 and 12, and I'm going to close with this verse. The Bible says this, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing, to, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. You see, grace doesn't just deal with your past, folks. It deals with your future. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for this time together. We thank you for grace, Lord, and I pray that you'll help us to have a, an understanding of it as we ought, to not prematurely jump on the price of grace and make it into a means of self, but to see the transformative and even the purpose of transformation that it has in our lives, to see that it has a future focus as well as a past. Help us, I pray, to grasp that. Help us to love and appreciate grace and all that you did to purchase it for us. And help us to live out the reality of it in our lives. Thank you so much, Lord, for all that you do, for your kindness to us. In Jesus Christ's name, amen.